Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. We've got a great one for you today. I think you're going to find this really smart, really interesting, provocative, and contrarian, as they say. We've got Coleman Hughes and Professor Glenn Lowry, two guys who I really, really deeply admire. And if you don't know who they are, you're going to deeply, deeply admire them very shortly. Uh, More on them in just one second. But first, I want to talk to you about pure talk. Let's talk about talk. Who's your wireless provider? Is it AT&T? Verizon? T-Mobile? What if I told you you could be saving over $400 a year without having to sacrifice your service or coverage? Pure talk is on the exact same network as one of those big carriers. We're not allowed to tell you which one, but it rhymes with Schmerizen. No, just kidding. I actually don't know. I don't know which one it is, but it's a big one. <laughs> and they give you, Pure Talk does the same bars, the same service for half the price. I mean, it's just dumb not to go with them, right? You're just costing yourself money unnecessarily. They don't play the same games as the big carriers do. I mean, they sell you your unlimited data and you don't need that much. Pure Talk instead will give you unlimited talk, unlimited text, two gigs of data, all for just 20 bucks a month. That's it. Their customer service is US-based, second to none, and it's the number one rated wireless company according to Consumer Affairs. And their CEO is a veteran, so there you go. Make the switch. It'll be the easiest decision you make all day. Get unlimited talk, text, plus two gigs of data, all for just 20 bucks a month. From your cell phone dial, pound 250 and say, Megan Kelly, and you'll save another 50% off your first month. Pound 250, say, Megan Kelly. Pure Talk. Simply, smarter, wireless. And now just a quick word about the two guys we're going to be talking to. Coleman Hughes uh, is 24 years old, a Columbia University graduate, and has become, I think, one of the most promising intellectuals of our time. He is, like Glenn, a contrarian. He does not accept sort of these race narratives that have been shoved down our throats. And has really been pushing back in a smart, forceful, respectful way on some of the narratives that we've been sold about our country and ourselves. One more on Coleman before I get to Glenn. I met Coleman Hughes shortly after I left NBC when I was still feeling bad and people were calling me names and I was down in the dumps. And I went to the comedy cellar with Doug, my husband. We had a lot of laughs. It was fun. And before I left the comedy cellar, he came over and introduced himself. He was there He knows a lot of the comedians and uh, he himself is not one, but he was there enjoying everything as well. He introduced himself and we sat and he opened with, Megan, I just want to tell you that what was done to you at NBC and the accusations against you are bullshit. (laughs) And of course, I was in such a dark period and place that I was like, oh my God, (laughs) right? It was like, he was like an angel who came over to help me. And we talked, I mean, over an hour, maybe two hours that night about everything. Uh, and I left with such a better understanding of what had happened to me, where we were in the country, where we were about to go and felt so grateful to him. And just one other thing on him, he had me on his podcast recently and we did a really in-depth conversation and he never asked me about the NBC exit or the blackface thing. And I heard him later introduce the interview by saying, I'm not going to ask her about that. Because one of the downsides of cancel culture is the person who's been the victim of it keeps getting re-victimized by people who keep bringing it up like it's meant to be part of their story. 
that's what kind of a guy Coleman Hughes is. He truly is a beautiful man in every sense of that word. And so the reason for inviting him on is multifaceted. Glenn, Glenn is somebody I listened to all summer long in the wake of the George Floyd protests, and he is intellectually fierce and really fair to his critics on the other side. He'll help you understand both arguments, uh, but I think he's an intellectual giant. And when he talks, you're going to want to stand up and cheer. He's just that kind of persuasive thinker. So these two guys are friends. They've done a lot of panels together. Uh, they don't agree on everything like Trump. Um, but I think they agree on the, on the big things like the damage that's being done to our country by woke culture crusaders who are more bullies than true activists. Anyway, enjoy. Professor Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes, thank you guys both so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. Thrilled to have you. Thrilled. Uh, I just want to tell the audience that the entire summer as we were going through the George Floyd protests and all the racial unrest we saw in the country, you were who I read, Coleman, and you were who I watched, Glenn, on The Glenn Show, which I highly recommend to everybody. I watched it on YouTube. Um, you and John McWhorter, who, you know, you come on, he's a little bit more left than you are. But it was these were all great debates where I learned. And it's just so hard to find <clears throat> open debates where people can still teach you as opposed to just preach to you in a way that's not really that informative. So anyway, thank you for that. Uh, let's just start because it's the most recent news of the day with Trump. And I, I know, Coleman, you describe yourself as a liberal. And Glenn, you've been a liberal, but you describe yourself now as a conservative. Uh, so do you guys mind sharing how you voted and, and why you voted that way? I'll start with you, Coleman. Yeah, I'm not really sure what I am anymore. And I don't I don't get too hung up on these words, liberal and conservative. Um, but I voted for Biden. And it's more accurate to say I voted against Trump. Um, I think a lot of the arguments in, in favor of Trump that I that I hear are really arguments against left wing hypocrisy and media bias, all of which I think are real and worrisome um, uh, phenomena. But when I see the, the way Trump conducts himself, the undignified way he, he holds the office, his uh, boorish personality, I think all of it is is such a turnoff that and and Biden is is has been fairly good at rejecting woke excesses thus far on the left that I I Biden seemed like the clear pick for me um so so that's why I voted Biden but I could see why someone would would vote Trump simply as a rejection of of left-wing identity politics and you know the apologizing for riots and and so on and so forth but ultimately i think you know for trump to be the face of the the fight against woke excesses is is not good it's not good for for that that face to be someone so undignified mm, that's an interesting point because there has been a debate about whether the, the fight against wokeness and cancel culture, is it helped by having Trump in the office or is it hurt by having Trump in the office? And that's well articulated, uh, an argument that 
if if you oppose that stuff, as I definitely do, you'll do better without him. And you're right. Biden has not signaled that he's in favor of this stuff, although um, he does say he's going to bring back the critical race theory mandated sessions for the federal government and contractors dealing with the feds and a couple of other things like he's he's unfortunately today the news broke that he's going to try to bring back these incredibly unfair anti-due process standards for accused men on college campuses that Obama had in place and Betsy DeVos under Trump tried to remove. I mean, the long and the short of it is you can't cross-examine your accuser if you're a college guy accused of sexual assault. You have no right to an attorney in the room. You have no right to discovery, so you can't see her texts or messages to friends. And once you get found guilty, which you are in virtually all cases, you have very limited rights of appeal. You, you you basically get labeled a sex offender. It's very hard to get into another college. It's just been crazy slanted in one direction. And now he's saying he's going to bring that, those unfair standards back. Um, Glenn, let me ask you, you're, I, I've heard you defend Trump on a, on a lot of things. And I know, I don't know if you voted uh, for yeah, him. Yeah, Megan, I want to defend did. Trump. I, I don't want to tell you how I voted. What I say is I voted for Biden, but you shouldn't believe me. And the the joke is, if I had voted for Trump, I would never say it. You can't ask me if I voted for Trump and expect me to say yes to that. Okay, so there's no information in my response to your question as to how I voted. I voted for Biden, but you've learned nothing from me saying so. But I want to make the case for Trump because I think this personification thing um, is ridiculous. I mean, we're we're now dancing on the grave of Trump. I mean, the the energy of the moment is, oh, hallelujah, our long, dark nightmare is over. Whereas the difference between Trump and Biden is, what is your policy about building pipelines and about fracking and about uh, global warming and about America's positioning in the in the climate change debate? The difference between uh, 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 Biden and Trump is, what are you going to do at the border? What is exactly the philosophy of your view about the integrity of the American nation state? The difference between Biden and Trump is who is secretary of the treasury? Mm. Um, the difference between Biden and Trump is a lot of things. There's 70 plus million people who voted for Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a fight about America. Huge forces are at play here that the press, that the coastal elites, that the pointy heads in the university, uh, that the uh, three and five gender people would drive the agenda of American politics is a horrifying prospect. That the deep state, that the phony Russia hoax, I know how it sounds. I know my saying this will mark me because I bothered to invoke the fact that the result of the 2016 election was never accepted. I don't want these people, and you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the news anchors. I'm talking about the people who put out 1619 projects. I'm talking about the people who give national book awards. I don't want these people telling me what this country is about. That's a legitimate position to reduce that argument to the personality of Donald J. Trump. He is merely an avatar standing in for a whole lot of forces in the society. I want regulations down. I like the way the economy was going before the COVID thing came. I want the economy to open up. I don't want another shutdown. Those are legitimate positions. Glenn, just unleash the heat, Coleman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think you disagree with a lot of that, but what points would you, what, what points would you take issue with, if any? So I think what I would take issue with is, you know, everything you said about 
left-wing media bias and hypocrisy I'm on board with, in- including, you know, the Russia story being a, a hoax and just being filled with confirmation bias since the beginning and, and the media being out to get Trump and being terrified at the prospect of 1619, uh, you know, being imported into schools and, and becoming the new story that America tells about ourselves. You know, my, my question is, what about the past four years of, of the Trump administration has shown us that Trump is an effective bulwark against that. Like the, the fir- there's a first question about how much power the executive has over a cultural war of ideas to begin with. And then there's a secondary question of what, what Trump's net effect on left-wing craziness is. Like the, 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 the logic of Trump derangement syndrome presupposes that Trump deranges people on the left to a degree that a, a Mitt Romney or, you know, someone I would feel comfortable bo- voting for, like a Mitt Romney or a John McCain wouldn't. And, and so I think, you know, it, it's not clear to me. I'm not saying that without Trump, suddenly this stuff is going to go away. I, what, what I'm saying is it's not clear to me what the net effect of Trump, the, the personality can, can is. I- can I respond to that? I, I want to give yeah. a concrete example. The race debate, the race debate, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, the NFL, uh, Trump picking a fight about that. The cops, uh, are the cops racist? Uh, going to the bedside of uh, Jacob Blake, uh, talking to the daughter of Charles, of uh, George Floyd. I mean, uh, mothers of the movement, uh, martyrdom in the black community from cops, okay? Versus love your country. Uh, you should be fortunate to be playing in the NFL and being a millionaire. Uh, what do you mean systemic racism? The country's made tremendous strides. Um, the cops, are you kidding me? It's one of the toughest jobs you could ever imagine. Really? You're going to take the side of the quote-unquote thug over and against the cops? The riots? You're going to apologize for that? Now, Trump is an imperfect tribune for a particular position in that discussion. That position says, by and large, the cops are our friends. After all, the murder rate in New York City went from over 2,000 to under 500 in a decade. After all, most of these incidents involve people who are provoking whatever the altercation is that ultimately ends up in their end. After all, really? You're going to tell me that George Floyd is a hero? That's a legitimate position. Mm-hmm. And Trump what, embodies so, it. So, now, now, so let's 70, go with that. Let me just finish this. 70 yeah, million people. That is almost half the electorate. You're going to roll that up until he's a racist and he's an imperfect uh, representation of something. It's not about him. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think he's a racist. I think, um, and and it's not. It's not just that he's imperfect, right? It, like if he's the if he's the embodiment of the "I love America" vote, and and you know, a, again, everything you say. These are things we we pretty much see eye to eye on. But if he's the embodiment of the I love America vote, what what makes what makes me angry as an American is when he doesn't respect the norms of democracy, such as conceding an election. Right. Like that, that that seems to me as as the president that is the one to defend Thomas Jefferson statues, for example, which I'm completely on Trump's side of. 
for him to then, you know, disrespect, you know, piss all over the founding fathers' graves by not respecting the transition of power is something that actually angers me in, in, in a patriotic sense. And it makes it, a, a blunder like that makes Trump's in, entire package more easily dismissible. Like he will always be remembered as the, the president to break that norm that, that is so fundamental. And, and it makes the rest of it just, again, it, 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 it besmirch, he besmirches everything he touches by association. That's why the personality stuff is not irrelevant. The way he conducts himself is not irrelevant. Let me, let me respond to that. And I, I really hate having to play this role, but I have to play this role. Uh, for the integrity of this conversation, I have to play the role. The election is in dispute. I actually have no position. I have no position whatsoever about recounts. I'm not a lawyer. I have no position about the legal claims that have been made. You may recall in 2000, there was also a disputed election, and you may recall that lawyers got involved. So there's a disputed election. It does look like Biden won as far as I can see, okay? I'm not disputing that. But, Glenn, but, Glenn, but hold on, let me finish this. Let me finish this. Uh, what I'm trying to say is the judgment about who's president of the United States will be rendered under the Constitution, when the Electoral College cast its votes, okay, the interpretation of the election situation, uh, just like in 2000, is a subjectively constructed in real time thing. We're deciding it right now. But when a foreign when a foreign leader decides to call and congratulate Biden, he's actually casting a ballot, so to speak, in this process by which we're constructing how we interpret the thing. But the election is not over. There are disputes in play. They're going yes. to play out. Okay. Yes, but, 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 it, I, and I'm, this is a genuine question. I, I, I was four years old during Al Gore, George Bush. Did, did either of them declare victory before the votes were even uh, on 2 a.m. The, 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 the day after the election? I don't, I don't think so. But, that, but that's, oh, you're saying Trump declared. Look, I, I don't want to get into that, Cole, but I, No, but I, that's, that's my point. Like that, that, that's not something to dismiss. That's, that's, uh, that's banana Republic shit that, that it's embarrassing to have an, an, an American president. Cause we like to think, I like to think of our, our nation as, as better than the nations that are routinely dealing with, uh, coups and, you know, people, you know, but, but that, that, that's, it's embarrassing as, as an American to, to, to not be able to take that norm for granted. Look, I agree with you. He shouldn't have said it. Mike Pence cleaned it up when he came up. But the election is in dispute. That's my point. The election is not over. The, yeah. disp the All the votes should be counted. Again, I'm going to uh, echo talking points here that because these talking points happen to actually be correct. We should let the process play out. Um, Stacey Abrams never conceded that gubernatorial and, and election. I, I, I've been I've been whinging about that for two years, Glenn. I've been I feel like I've been the only one talking about how fundamentally corrupt that is. So to be consistent, uh, do you I, not I, I say think, the same about you, Trump. Do you not think that the voter suppression phenomenon? This is Eric Holder and Barack Obama. Okay, this this is this. Uh, creeping argument. It doesn't know any bounds that if a legislature changes a state law in such a way that a, an accountant calculates it will disadvantage the black vote, then we presume that the motivation of that legislator was to suppress that vote. And we thereby cast into doubt the electoral consequences of processes 
that are under the governance of those state legislatures because we presume that the motives of those Republican state legislatures, many more of which exist after Obama was president than before, was somehow racially unjust. Do you not think that that undermines the integrity of our electoral process? Absolutely, Glenn. And, and I've, been, I've been talking about that for years, about the, the, how the, the, you know, the moral panic about voter suppression it hits me in, in exactly that same, you know, that same patriotic place in my brain where, you know, concerns about, you know, inflated concerns about voter fraud hits me. It's like you, you're playing with our democracy. You're playing with the trust in our democracy and you better have a damn good reason to play with it if you're going to. Can I ask a question okay. on that? Can I, can I ask a question on that? Um, <laughs> okay. Sorry. Nick. Here, no, no, it's fine. I'm loving this. Um, I understand that Trump is abnormal in many ways. And it's, of course, also why he was elected in large part. Um, but I, don't you think, Coleman, that he has some reason to distrust s- systems at this point, you know, given that so many of them are very clearly against him and given how the apparatus has worked for four years to ruin him, to, to tear him down, to actually boot him out of the presidency? I, if I'm Trump, I don't have a lot of reason to trust anyone, especially vote counters in Philadelphia or places that I know are controlled by Democrats who you have, you know, you have more than a, a decent reason to believe might think the ends justify the means. That's why I've been saying, go ahead and kick the tires, kick the tires all day long. Do do better than Stacey Abrams did, who just ginned up controversy in the press, but never actually pursued a lawsuit. The The courts are fair. I believe the courts are fair and they will have the final say. And then we'll all feel better one way or the other. We'll, we'll know a winner or a loser and, and we, we can lick our wounds one way or the other. But I feel like, don't don't you think he has a reason to have some healthy amount of distrust? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. And, and the media has been out to get him since day one. I mean, it's 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 obvious if you if you, you know, care enough to look at it. Um, but listen, I, I think people kind of implicitly have lowered their bar for for over the past four years it's like yes he from his position the media has been out to get him um you know the the russia investigation he has to be paranoid and thinking that any criticism of him is unfair but to begin he's also you know can't we shouldn't we have a bit of a higher standard of our president Right. Like even if you get unfairly criticized for four years, does that mean I just have to accept any level of paranoia and mistrust in the system that I, I shouldn't put the burden on you to try to distinguish a legitimate criticism from, um, you know, complete bias? But I can understand it, but this is the president. Right. This is well, this you, is the top just- job. You just asked him to concede when he doesn't think that he lost the election and he no, wants to go through due I process. Asked him, I asked him and, not to declare victory, at least. Well, that was another thing that you said. Uh, the, quote, declaration of victory, close quote, was an offhand comment that he made in a uh, thing that he shouldn't have said. And as I said... So, so uh, that's what I talk about, we lo- lowering the bar. He said it twice well, in the well, span of like three minutes. You just, asked for him to, you just asked for him to concede. And then when he says, no, I'm actually going to fight because I think I've been wrong. Uh, you call him a, a, a miscreant who has destroyed the, the integrity of American government. I mean, uh, he gets to have his day in court. He gets to fight. No, he, he does get to fight. 
But but listen, uh, my so, so let him fight. Yeah, well, the election night, he said, uh, frankly, we won. And then a minute later, he said, we won. This is like this that, is Trump. This is Trump. So the, that's what I'm saying. We we say this is Trump. We excuse it. We excuse it as if it doesn't matter. We've changed the bar because we understand he's he's like a friend that we're used to showing up drunk at our house, and we just we price it into our judgment of him. No, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not going to get down into the uh, you know Trump is crazy. Trump is this or Trump is that. This is not about Trump. Well, that's therein lies the whole part of the election. If if Biden could make it about Trump. He was going to win, and if Trump could make it about policy, uh, he was more likely to to win. And, and to me, what I when I see when I see Trump doing what he's doing, and I I'm not in Trump's head. I can't tell you whether he believes he's in fact the victor or whether he's trying to create a soft PR exit for himself. I don't know, but I, I'm reminded of. Do you guys remember this guy Harry Markopoulos? He was the guy. He, he showed up over and over at congressional hearings and elsewhere trying to warn about Bernie Madoff. And the guy was, he was some sort of former securities executive and an investigator and he like a forensic fraud investigator. And he had like a crappy suit. He was always green. <laughs> His hair was messed up. He just did not look like somebody we should listen to. And on the other end of his accusations was Bernie Madoff. You know, he'd run the SEC. He was completely respected and lauded by all these white shoes firms on Wall Street. And everybody's like, all right, Harry, (laughs) bitter much? That's how he sounded. Just kind of like, no, poor Harry. Well, little Harry was right. He, He was the one guy who saw it and was like setting himself on fire trying to say, this guy's a fraud. Don't give him any more money. He should be in jail. And Harry was right. And so I kind of look at Trump, not necessarily in this instance. I don't know. I'll, I'll listen to what the courts tell me because I've spent enough time litigating in them that I do trust them. Not implicitly. They get things wrong, but they're going to get this one right one way or the other. There's too many cases and there's too much data. Um, I think Trump is sort of at this point almost a Harry Markopoulos figure, as we've seen on a couple of these accusations against him, you know, and he's jumped up and down and said, I did not collude with the Russians and all the media and all the Democrats and all polite society was saying you did. Right. And Harry was there like, "Mm -mm," and he won. And Trump was coming in saying the media is the enemy. They're the enemy. And people are like, it's disgusting and it's deplorable. He was. And you know what? He was proven right. They're certainly his enemy and they are the enemy of his supporters. I mean, you don't have to look far for evidence of that. So I almost see this, whether he wins or loses, as his final Harry Markopoulos moment. We'll find out. Can I ask you um, now what you take away from the, the black vote? Because the numbers have changed from election night to now. It looks like he got 8% of the black vote overall. That's up from 6% in 2016. He he did a little bit better with black men than he did with black women. And that's that's not a huge surprise, given the, the gender split overall. Um, but, you know, the Republicans are spinning this as like he improved his margins with black voters despite four years of being called a white supremacist. And the Democrats are like, eh, eight percent. Right? So what what's your take on those numbers? I'll start with you, Glenn. Uh, I wouldn't put so much weight on the numbers. I, I'm not a numbers person in terms of elections in any case. But I was going to say uh, you're an economist, it, it, you know. Just, you know, think about six to eight is also 94 to 92. I mean, we're still above 90. Right. So. So but the nature of the conversation is definitely shifting. I mean, you had African-American political candidates. There was a challenger to Maxine Waters seat out in Los Angeles. There was somebody in Texas who was 
right? And you you had uh, the Jones, uh, the this guy in, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget his name in uh, Michigan who ran for the Senate and uh, uh, did a very uh, yeah, know, John James, John James, yeah. Uh, you you have Tim Scott uh, has played a role in the senatorial campaign committee and stuff like that. You have these rappers. Uh, I mean, you know, it's froth on the top of the uh, public culture, but it's still, I think, indicative of something. Trump missed an opportunity. I, I mean, I, I think if he had uh, been um, more of an effective populist, uh, he might have been able to to, to uh, pry this uh, kind of lock that Democrats have on uh, African-American political sensibility a little bit away. Uh, certainly, I think he had the potential to do so. Um, so I, I'm, so I, I think we have opened up a conversation about uh, the uh, political tenor of African-American uh, leadership and such that uh, I think in the years ahead will, will be interesting to see what, what develops. Mm-hmm. Do you see any sort of a trend happening here, Coleman? Well, there there is a trend. Um, apparently, I was speaking with David Shore, who is... Obama's in-house Nate Silver type, and um, he he pointed out that ever since either 2000 or 2004, every four years the the percentage of the black vote that goes red has increased, and so this two percent increase could just be it could have nothing to do with Trump per se, and just be a continuation of that trend, um, and it's. Of course, the trend is starting out with such small numbers that it's easy to ignore. But, uh, and frankly, I don't know exactly what is causing the trend, but there certainly is a trend line in one direction. And it's possible that 30 or 40 years from now that 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 might be a really significant chunk of the vote. I don't plan on waiting that long, Cole. (laughs) (laughs) I I said I don't plan on waiting that long. <laughs> well, we I don't have saw it, thirty. Uh, I don't have thirty years. <laughs> well, one thing oh, I will say about it. One thing I will say about it, and this might. Compl- I'm shooting from the hip completely here. I have no idea whether this is true, but I have to imagine. And and the 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 other point to realize is that this trend, insofar as it exists, apparently is mainly among younger black voters, thirty five and below, and more secular voters rather than Christian black voters. To the extent that that's true, at least the, the youth part, what it, part of it could be is that younger black Americans are growing up in, in a country that is less racist than it's ever been in a condition where racism will never be completely gone, but where you know, I just talked to my father I talked to my grandfather. They had more experiences of frank, straight up racism than I have. And most black people I know have that same dynamic with their parents and grandparents. And so if you're met with a a narrative that is a new narrative that's telling you racism is absolutely everywhere, it's pervasive. And you combine that with a generation that is on a day-to-day basis experiencing less of it than every black generation prior it's possible that you will just get a slow backlash of black people feeling this narrative doesn't really address the concerns that they actually have in their life 
and it's increasingly fantastical and you may just get a backlash against that. You get the you get the black lash. Remember Van Jones said there was a white lash? The black lash. More with the dream team in one second, but first. Have you ever been sitting in a room and you're enjoying yourself and then you realize there's something wrong and it's that you feel like you're on the sun because you haven't bothered to put blinds up on your window? Call Blinds Galore. Go to Blinds Galore. That's what you need to do, dot com. Because they can help give any room an incredible makeover with custom, custom window coverings. It's a family-owned and run company that's been doing this for over 20 years, led by a mother-daughter duo. And BlindsGalore.com was actually the very first place to buy custom window treatments online. In other words, they can give you blinds and shades and shutters and drapes, everything, and you can do it all online. You don't actually have to go into the store. The experts at Blinds Galore have covered over 2 million windows. They'll make it super easy to get custom coverage that you've always wanted at a great price. And you could do it all from the comfort of your living room. You take your measurements, you customize them online. And with BlindsGalore.com's new Build a Blind tool, you'll even be able to see exactly how your blinds or your shades will look on screen before you hit purchase. You're going to save a ton compared to the big stores and you'll get a custom-made product designed just for your windows. Now, also, you can connect it to your smart home or Amazon Alexa. That's nice. So it's easy to get custom blinds and shades that you've always wanted in your home at Blinds Galore. Get started with 15 free samples and take up to 45% off your order. Visit BlindsGalore.com today and let them know that I sent you by choosing The Megan Kelly Show at checkout. Beautiful custom window treatments are waiting for you at BlindsGalore.com. That's BlindsGalore.com. wake of the George Floyd killing and the riots and just incendiary talk about race in the country that took a direction I found downright alarming, alarming. And uh, having been in the media, I had seen the media take random cases involving white police officers and black suspects and blow them into a huge thing time and time again. And it coincidentally always seems to happen in an election year. And so many cases get just get totally ignored when they're not in an election year. And I do think they have an agenda. But if you look at the actual statistics of police shootings of black men, they do not. This is data. They do not support the narrative that police are hunting black men in the streets. And yet that was said that was said this summer by LeBron James and others and accepted. And it's become a narrative that I think large factions of the Black Lives Matter supporters believe. What what LeBron said, tweeted was, we are literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. And Coleman, I thought you, you, you had a very brave article. You're at the Manhattan Institute now and writing for City Journal, among other places. But you, you just said it flat out. It's not true. It isn't true. And and I wonder if you can put some meat on, on that and ex- help us understand why people refuse to believe that it's not true. Hmm. Well, first thing I want to point out is I, I often think of the analogy to, to Islamist terror. If you heard someone say, I fear being killed by a jihadi every time I walk out of my home in Virginia, say, you would think to yourself, well, this person, this person has imbibed a narrative so crazy that they seem they like they might be crazy. And, and you would feel no compunction at all pushing back against them and saying, well, actually, only 30 people died from Islamist terror last year. 
And obviously, one is too many. But let's not let's not blow this out of proportion. That you, you would you would understand at least people on the left would understand instinctively why it's important to pour cold water on you know crazy exaggerations of a problem. So you know when I say that around 50 unarmed Americans get shot dead by the cops every year. To me, it feels like I'm pouring water on a cold, uh, cold water on a narrative just in the same way that you might want to do about jihadist terror. But it's received completely differently on the left. I would say probably most pro- protesters don't know that the number is that low to begin with. They don't know that the, the, the biggest, the, 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 the race that, you know, it takes up the majority of that number is going to be white people in most years. And, and the other thing that people, people really don't know if they don't, if they're not paying attention closely is that every time you see a video of a black person unarmed getting shot by a cop, there is almost an identical video or situation that has happened to a white person probably in the same year that you don't know about because they don't get elevated into your Instagram feed, into your Facebook feed, into the the areas that into the medium that media that people consume nowadays so in my piece i i took a random year i took 2015 and just listed 10 or 12 different white unarmed white people that were shot and killed by cops in most cases the police did not receive any kind of punishment one of them was a six-year-old kid each of these is different and should be analyzed on its own terms some of them are straight up murders others are completely defensible um and and it happens to Americans of every race every year. Mm-hmm. I, w- to your point, community requests tend to determine police deployment. Someone inside an urban community calls the police, they show up, and then there's an interaction with a suspect. And if you if you survey most black women inside of these communities where there are high crime rates, they want more police, not less. Now, and black men too. More police, not less. They're worried about their kids getting shot. They want they say they talk about feeling relieved when they see a cop in the vestibule of their building and getting a little worried when he's not there. And that just so, to add to the statistics, there are about seventy five hundred black homicides a year, a black homicide victims a year. Uh, and in two thousand nineteen, there were, according to the Washington Post, fourteen of those were black unarmed suspects dealing with police. So that is 0.2% of the total of black homicide victims, 0.2%. This in a country where we have an average of 27 deadly weapons attacks on cops a day, a day, 27 deadly weapons attacks on cops a day. And, and, you know, when cops make between 10 and 11 million arrests a year. So, you know, Glenn, people don't like to talk about that. And even I, when I talk to people about the stats, you, they'll look at you like, I don't want to hear your stats. Your stats are contrary to my lived experience. And that's racist. What That's a racist's defense to what our own lion eyes are telling us, right? We can see. And, and a lot of black men will say, I have had a lifetime of negative interactions with the police. So don't tell me there isn't systemic racism in the cop in the police department. Uh, Megan, what we're dealing with here is a, a, a kind of delusion on a grand scale and a kind of denial of brutal 
and very disturbing facts. And those facts have to do with black crime. Now, I have to apologize in advance for even saying this, okay? Because I don't take any pleasure in saying this. Uh, I'm not some ideologue who's, who's on some crusade. I'm not a racist. The reality of life in the communities where these encounters between police and uh, black citizens take place, these problematic encounters, is basically driven by the violent behavior of people. I mean, look at the homicide rate, look at the robbery and burglary rates, look at what's actually going on on the ground. Uh, the reason that you have a disparity in the number of African-Americans who are killed by cops relative to population is because you have a disparity in the encounters between African-Americans and cops, which is based upon the behavior of African-Americans, not the behavior of cops. The reason that you have a prison disparity, a monumentally humongous disparity in the incidence of incarceration is because you have a huge disparity in the incidence of criminal offending not because the system is so configured as to hunt down and lock up black men. This is humiliating and shameful. If you're an African-American, if you're a lifelong liberal, uh, if you're somebody who believes in civil rights and racial justice, the failures reflected in this disparity of uncivil behavior by race in the country are unbearable to accept. And therefore, fantasies get invented. Michael Brown had his hands up, don't shoot. Mass incarceration is the result of uh, white supremacy. Who could believe it? White supremacy? Certainly, if you're one of these police officers or he's your uncle or your brother or your cousin, and you live in, I don't know, uh, Staten Island somewhere, one of these enclaves of working class uh, uh, white people around here, Providence, Rhode Island, Johnston, Rhode Island, or something like that, you don't believe that for a minute. And you're worried about the future of your country. That's what's at stake in this debate. The stats that I've seen say that 60% of the violent crime in our major cities are committed by black defendants. And so necessarily their interactions with police will go up. But you know, the response to that, Glenn, is, well, why is that? Why are more black people offending in a criminal way? Why? That's that's where racism well, comes in, that, they're, that I, the I system mean, has kept them in poor communities uh, where they don't have any economic advantages, where their education system is awful, leading to bad choices that the rest of society doesn't seem to give a damn about. Okay. Um, we can have that conversation. I don't think I need to know the answer to the question why, as I don't think anybody actually does know the answer to that question, to be able to decide about order, law, and civility. I mean, I, I think I get to ask of citizens, don't hurt the other person. I get to ask that of them, regardless of their socioeconomic experience. That's a bedrock of civilization. Uh, I get to expect that people are going to actually conform in such a way that they don't take the lives of six-year-olds sitting on their auntie's lap on the front porch. That's barbarity. Uh, so... Um, uh, yes, people are going to say the system should be so configured, but I think it's time to take responsibility for what's actually happening in African-American communities. Uh, and that's why I'm speaking in the uh, tone of voice that I'm speaking right now. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that piece of it, Coleman, when you get down to the reason? What the, that's, that's where the discussion goes. With the, what is the reason that the Black crime rate is as high as it is? Yeah, the, again... I, I echo Glenn's frustration with the question itself and the, the assumptions that are embedded in the question. 
Um, the assumptions are that, that are embedded in the question is that criminal behavior is, you know, completely unnatural. If someone has violent impulses, that that couldn't possibly be um, how some people are. Uh, it has to be something society injected into them. Um, I, I'm not sure that we know that. I mean, the the history of our species is, is is the history of a lot of beautiful things, but a lot of ugly things, and a lot of ugly things that are done for no reason other than pure selfish nature, red in tooth and claw. And in, in many ways, you, you could make the argument as Steve as Steven Pinker has that. Um, the 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 really the thing to explain is why how populations have come to commit less crime at least in the the parts of the west and the the east that have incredibly low crime rates that that's the phenomenon to be explained beyond that i would say i i have never heard a compelling explanation from the people that have a theory about what the quote unquote root causes of crime are um I've never heard really a compelling explanation of why crime spiked in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and then suddenly came down in the 90s. Um, you know, and the, the, the truth is, as Glenn said, you don't need the, the unified theory of what makes a person choose a criminal lifestyle over a non-criminal lifestyle in order to get the ethical question right, which is that you have no right to hurt your fellow citizens. And as a matter of keeping civilization in order, we have to prevent you from doing that or punish you when you, when you, when you do it. So people have, the, people have this unthinking and naive, um, uh, I think, belief that poverty causes crime. And therefore, if we eliminate poverty, which sidebar, how, how exactly does one do that uh, fully, then the crime problem will just sort itself out. And I think that's incredibly naive. It doesn't accord with the picture, certainly with my picture of human nature. Um, and that, that's how I would sum it up. Well, and does it, does it comport, Glenn, with what... We've seen government try to do historically to try to address poverty, like the welfare programs that came into place in, in the great society, which were meant to help you know, poor people, black people. And we saw a real flip in the black marriage rate. And I guess some, some would dispute it, but in the, the number of homes that don't have a father living in them in the black community, all of which have been cited as possible reasons for black crime rates black kids struggling in schools and so on. Sure. I've, I've cited them myself at, to a certain degree, although it's very hard to draw any, you know, ironclad quantitative, uh, you know, proof of uh, the causal, uh, causal links. Uh, it, the link between the welfare state and the uh, decline or the unraveling of the black family. These are very controversial things. People would go ballistic in the seminar rooms that I'm familiar with if you were to say these things out loud. And, and I'm not going to take a stand of, of causality, but, but common sense tells me that if you've got 70% of the kids born to a Black woman, born to a woman without a husband, that this is a reflection of something not healthy 
in the social fiber of, of the community for reasons that, you know, you could spend a lot of time talking about welfare state or uh, bad economy or whatever. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to underscore the, the consequence of this racial disparity and in, in crime and criminal offending, which is that it makes it hard for us to stand against crime and criminal offending because the society, this is really Shelby Steele's argument, but I think he's right. I mean, the society as a whole is guilty about the fact of past racism. And we know we have, collectively speaking, with regard to the treatment of Black people, blood on our hands, America does. And, and so when you have this huge racial disparity in, um, in uh, uh, crime and criminal offending, incarceration and whatnot, uh, it, it makes it hard to stand up for law and order. The, the very idea that you would invoke law and order would be thought to be racist. I mean, think about that. Uh, there's something uh, bizarre about that. It's racist to insist on law and order. Well, only because the insistence on law and order would have you confronting, oh, I don't know, mobs of people looting uh, high-end boutiques on North Michigan Avenue mm-hmm. in Chicago. And who are those people? And so you find yourself with a rhetoric about the causality of you know, their sense of dissatisfaction with society. And you even find yourself blaming the president of the United States who might take the uh, position against them as inciting them to something. Uh, when in fact, you know, they, they are, uh, you know, uh, an embarrassing reflection of, uh, of structural failures that we don't exactly know how to, how to deal with. Well, is there, is there the, something else at play here? You know, the, was it Condi Rice who said the soft bigotry of low expectations? Um, as we look at- I don't at, know who said it first. George uh, W. Bush used to say it though. Yeah, I think he got it from Condi. Um, <laughs> it's uh, You look at some of the black crime rates and you look at how black kids are struggling in our education system and how some schools are dealing with it. And in too many schools, it's just to lower the standards or just assume they can't do it or pass them anyway, even though they're reading and their, their math is entirely too low for their grade level. And- I think this is done by a lot of people who are trying to be allies, right? They're trying to sort of excuse the crime rate in the one instance as, you know, they're victims of circumstance and excuse poor performance in school, you know, for, for different, but maybe related reasons, but both have the same net effect, which is to not really help anyone. And I think, you know, if we can focus on schools for a minute and Glenn, you're of academia and Coleman, you you just graduated from from Columbia, so you're not too far out of it yourself. I I would love to talk about the achievement gap because we've had huge, huge federal spending on trying to fix it, but it keeps going up. And and the government, you know, they've tried to prioritize poor children to try to equalize spending between poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods, but still the test scores in math and science and reading, they've remained flat for 40 years. And um the, the question is why, right? Why, just to give you a couple stats so the audience is up to speed, uh, there was a, I think there was a study in 2012 by the Department of Education. 79% of eighth graders in Chicago could not read. Uh, and that was, it was split basically down the middle, black and Hispanic. In Detroit, only 7% of eighth graders were proficient in reading. Only 4% were proficient in math. And it, it, it was something like in five out of seven categories, a majority of blacks were scoring at the lowest level possible. So it's just the stats are alarming and bad. And what we're hearing right now is that's because of systemic racism. I'll give that one to you first, Coleman. Yeah. So 
it, it strikes me that when you talk about the bigotry of low expectations, the measure of how of how much you respect a person is what you would blame them for if they mess up. If if I'm looking at the best chess player in the world and he makes a blunder, I blame him. I, I say I'm disappointed in him. If if on the other hand I'm looking at someone for whom it's true to say that nothing they could do would be so bad that I would blame them and them only. What I'm saying about them is that I do not view them as a full human being with agency and autonomy. You're saying about them the opposite of what you you would say about the best chess player in the world, right? You're saying you view them in precisely the opposite way, as someone so low that nothing is beneath them. They cannot be blamed for anything. They're like a child. Um, that's, that's the approach that is, is generally taken because a lot of liberals feel that given the choice between quote-unquote victim blaming and, um, and this kind of soft bigotry, they would prefer the soft bigotry because the victim blaming to them, it, it, it seems like hard bigotry. And I think um, a lot of a, a lot of people look at these stats and they feel dejected. They feel, I have no idea. I, I don't really know how we could make them much better um, because it's, it's a very tough thing raising test scores. As you say, we, we've been trying to do it for 50 years and, and it's not so easy. At the same time, the, the charter schools that occasionally have some success with it, for some reason, those are opposed by the left. Mm-hmm. So it's, well, it's, it's, isn't, it's isn't it teachers unions? Isn't that the reason yes. those are opposed? I find the contrast between the uh, reception on the left of teachers unions and police unions to be very, very interesting. Uh, teachers unions are unions and they're in the business of protecting the interests of their members and the interests of their members are not perfectly aligned with the interest of the kids. It's obvious given the statistics that you were talking about that these institutions are not succeeding. Now, there are home life issues and peer group issues and such that uh, have to be also taken into account. But the schools that are serving the kids in Baltimore or in St. Louis or on the south side of Chicago or in south central Los Angeles or Oakland, California, they're not succeeding. Uh, that system needs to be blown up. I, I, I mean, I know I'm saying a very radical thing. Experimentation there should be welcome. Let 100,000 flowers bloom. Charter schools, uh, yeshiva schools, and the equivalent of that in the Afrocentric world, whatever, let a thousand flowers bloom. It's time for uh, breaking up that system and getting these kids better educational services. It wouldn't be a panacea. Uh, I wouldn't mind spending a little bit more money if I thought it could be well spent. I'm not just going to shovel it into uh, this bureaucracy that is uh, politically protecting itself and that's not serving these kids very well. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the teachers' unions, uh, all of us love our teachers. That's not the same as loving your teacher's union, which is really, they care about one thing, which is the union. I mean, they didn't even put teachers first, that the union itself is what's most important, supporting democratic causes. Uh, maybe teachers come up someplace after that, but students aren't even on the list. Students are not their concern. Right. The, the other thing, I mean, so the teacher's union explains 
why left-wing politicians uh, are against charter schools. The argument I encounter from normal people are, you know, people who listen to podcasts and liberals. Who say, are what are you trying to say, school. Coleman? <laughs> uh, is that uh, it takes money away from government and it's anti-public school. And uh, it occurs to me, this is kind of like that. there's a this phrase market fundamentalism. You know, if you're a libertarian, you think the market is always better than the government in every case, you will be accused, I think, justly of market fundamentalism and blind faith in markets. But there's the opposite problem as well, blind faith in government. Why should I have more of an allegiance to the public education, public education system in itself? That's not an end. The end is to educate kids by whatever means necessary. What about, can I ask you, I read among the other works I was I was into this summer was uh, Jason Riley's Please Stop Helping Us, right? <laughs> Which is a great book. And he's writer for the Wall Street Journal. And he cites in there another another problem which is culture culture and this is i i be honest with you i i feel uncomfortable even saying this as a as a white woman but he he talks about some study by a guy named John Ogbu of UC Berkeley an, an anthropology professor who went to Shaker Heights Ohio in the late 90s and uh try and this is a an area that had black students it was like one third of the the residents were black the school district was pretty equally divided but same, blacks trailed significantly by GPA, by college placement, by dropout rate. And, and a lot of these were affluent families. And they were trying to figure out what, why. Why is that? And what, what Agbu apparently concluded was that there is um, a, a culture, at least at that school, and he extrapolated it, where it wasn't cool. It was considered, quote, white to get good grades, to take AP classes to achieve honors, to talk properly. That's the term used um, in the book. And that there was peer pressure within the black student community not to work too hard. It wasn't prized or considered cool. Now, if that's a factor, it's a problem. Like that's a, that's a, that's a big problem, but I don't know. As I say, it's a, it's an uncomfortable thing to even raise. What are your thoughts, Glenn? Megan, I would say it's actually an opportunity. Maybe it's both of those things, because if that's the case, it can be changed. I mean, for example, if you make a genetic argument and you say the blacks are, you know, just the IQ they've inherited and they don't have it. Well, there's not a lot can be done about that. But if indeed, to the extent that it is the case that peer group norms and social patterns and behavior valorization and what's thought hip, hip and cool is implicated, well, you can have a campaign against that. You can you can uh, raise the consciousnesses of people. You can, you know, redefine. I mean, I, I think this is an underestimated thing. Uh, African-Americans became black from being Negro sometime between, I don't know, 1950 and 1970, because uh, people started thinking it was OK for their hair to be natural and not have to be straightened and that the light color of the skin was not necessarily a thing to affirm and things like that. That's not nothing. That's something. So, so I would say that. I think there's a lot of evidence, not just Agbu. Agbu is dated the late uh, great uh, anthropologist uh, that there, you know, Fryer even has some evidence on this. I could go into it, but it would take too much time, that there, that there is something to it. It's also uh, fair Bolton to say so in the enlightened uh, uh, racial advocacy circles. It's like blaming, uh, blaming Black people. But uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think it's okay to. It, by the way, there's a flip side to this. Why are the Asian students suing Harvard and Princeton or Yale, wherever they're suing, uh, insisting that they're being discriminated against because these institutions should probably be 50% Asian student body if they were admitting just based on academic merit instead of 20 or 25%? Um, is it does it have anything to do with culture, with how those communities organize? with what those peer groups value, with how those families uh, carry out their duties, with what uh, expectations those uh, communities have for their people, with the institutions that they develop, the patterns and practices and habits that they cultivate. I mean, so obviously culture, it seems to me obvious that culture is uh, a legitimate part of the account that you would give for disparity in academic performance between groups. Yeah, I, I want to... Yeah, go ahead. I just want to underscore something. A couple things Glenn said. One is one reason people don't like the culture argument is because, as Glenn said, they they think it's not easily changed. They think it makes them helpless. Oh well, if it's culture, then I can't do anything about it. And you know, a, a thought occurred to me, which is that implicitly, what what that argument says is that if it's systemic racism, then it's much easier to solve. And I'm not sure that that's true. So, for example, if you think about, let's say that prosecutors or real estate agents are, you know, have, have, are, are racially biased, right? Like, like that, that documentary where they send identical, otherwise identical white and black people to go apply for a mortgage and the real estate agents, you know, treat them differently, right? How, that's very hard to root out too. I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure that it's easier to, to, you, you would have to have some kind of panopticon watching every real estate agent in their private moments. And e even then it would, you would have to like see into their mind. And then, then once you know their races, how do you then change their behavior if it's not in their self-interest to do so? My point is just that it's not so clear to me which one of these is easier and which one of the, which one of, which, which one is harder. Mm -hmm. As for the yeah, acting no... white thing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's something Obama has talked about. It's something Jay-Z has talked about. Um, it's something I've experienced. Uh, there's a great book by Stuart Buck called Acting White, which is uh, just a, a treasure trove or data dump of examples of people complaining about this since roughly the, the 60s. And um, apparently there were not so many examples uh, before that time. So it's it's something that is relatively new in American history. And uh, I will say one time I remember mentioning this at a charter school in the South Bronx run by uh, our mutual friend, uh, Ian Rowe. And that was the, one of the few times I've gotten a uh, an ovation from a, a, a crowd of entirely you know, black and Hispanic parents is when I mentioned this notion of acting white being pernicious. So clearly it resonated in some way with people. Um, and I think it's more present in some places than other places. A lot of black people I've mentioned really don't, didn't grow up with it, but it's pervasive enough that it ought to be talked about um, and opposed. Coming up in one second, we're going to talk more with Glennon Coleman about the 1619 Project, academia, and also patriotism. And 
what's being sold in our schools today instead of patriotism. How do you raise a patriot? They've got some thoughts I think you're going to want to hear. But first, I got a crash course in home title theft, and you better pray this crime never happens to you because it can ruin you. It can ruin you financially. Here's how easy it is. The legal titles to our homes are digitized, and they're kept on government and business servers and in the cloud up above where they can be hacked. A cyber thief finds your home's title, forges your signature on a quick claim deed, stating you sold your home to him. Not true, but it's done. Then he takes out loans against your home and all your equity is suddenly gone, leaving you in debt up to your eyeballs. You won't know it until the collection calls pour in. You're not protected by anything. Insurance, your bank, the common identity theft programs are like, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. Home title lock, however, will protect you. Home Title Lock will put a barrier around your home's title, and the instant they detect tampering, they will help shut it down cold. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim, and then use code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. All right, back to Glenn and Coleman in one second, but first, we're going to bring you a feature we call Asked and Answered, and this is where we bring in our executive producer, Steve Krakauer, to do the asked part of this feature. Steve? Hey, Megan. Yeah, lots of great questions continue coming in. Send those to questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. This one comes from Jennifer Bell, sort of a general question that I thought is a good little look behind the scenes. She says she's been enjoying the show, enjoys the middle of the road approach, and wants to know how do you select guests that come on your show? Hmm. Well, it depends. I mean, some people I just love and I want to talk to and I, you know, gave my team a list and like the interview you're listening to right now <laughs> would fall in that category. Like I, there was zero chance of me doing the show without talking to those two guys. And I want to have them back on over and over and over. And I hope you feel the, the same way. We, I could have picked any one of those subjects and we could have done an hour with those guys on, you know, racial preferences, on police, on Black Lives Matter. They're just brilliant. And there's just not enough time in the day. Uh, but then you know, there's also just the work of my team where we sit down and we ask ourselves, what are the issues in the news and who would be the best guest for it? What are the books coming out and which ones have our interest? Um, I don't know who's sort of a provocateur out there who might be fun to talk to. Like when I saw Kim Klasick on The View take on Joy and Sunny, I was like, I want to know her. So some of it is just fulfilling my personal my personal wish list <laughs> uh, based on what the team finds interesting, too. I will tell you without revealing the guests. All right. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I said to my team, there is one set of guests that if you could get them, it would be my dream come true. Like I could retire. I don't, I don't have to interview anybody ever again after I speak with this set and they were like, okay. And we got them and there, and, and my team, Steve, I'm talking about you. You just, you sent me an email update about the guest. You were like, okay, so on the 10th, we have this person. And on the 12th, we have that person. And on the 14th, and I, and you just threw them in there. Like it was a nothing. I was like, ah, <laughs> I was on the couch with my family and, and my kids were like, what, what, what happened? Like, oh my God. So, I mean, this is a great tease for the interview. Everybody home is wondering who the hell it could be, who could generate this most excitement. They're almost sure to be disappointed now. Anything I say is going to be a disappointment. <laughs> um, it's a collective effort is the bottom line. And sometimes it's really, it brings a lot of delight into my life and hopefully into yours. Do you, I think I, did I sum it up? Okay. What do you think? Steve? Yeah. I don't think anyone will have any idea what it, what it is, but they will, they will find out uh, next month. That's a good tease. Yeah. We don't, I don't think we're going to air it until right December. So 
I haven't done the interview yet. Um, I don't know why I'm not telling you, but it's it's fun to keep the mystery alive a little bit, just a little bit and to keep you guessing. Uh, I'm taking your submissions. People who know me well might know who who that would be for me. It's not Judge Judy. I do love her, but I've interviewed her many times. These are people I've never, ever spoken to, but have long, long, long loved from afar. Okay, going to leave it at that. But uh, hey, if you guys have guest suggestions, I'll take them. I actually do look. We we have we monitor our Instagram page and uh, Twitter and the reviews that people post at Apple. And I've actually gotten a lot of great ideas from there. Uh, somebody was like, have on Sam Harris. We're having on Sam Harris. So I appreciate that and keep them coming. And now back to Glennon Coleman. Well, as you guys know, now we're at a place where things like self-reliance, determination, belief in the American dream, according to the Smithsonian, at least, those are all white terms that are racist if you encourage them in, in black people or students. You know, it's gotten to the point now where ideals that we used to attach to academic achievement or striving to be a professional success are now being dismissed as racist and not laudable. You know, and, and you've got that example. You've got the example at Rutgers, Glenn, where they decided to, to change the, the grammar standards because they thought they were racist against black students as, you know, as if they, they're not capable of, of something higher or better, you know, that, that it's racist to expect that. And I, I do wonder where all of this goes, like, where, where does this wind up? Well, it's very troubling. Um, and I think the character of the country in some ways is being tested. Um, I, I like to think about it in terms of, you know, the history of discrimination cannot have but had the consequence of hindering the full development of African-American potential. So when we come through the era of the civil rights movement and where we are now, where pretty much we have reckoned with, you know, uh, that legacy. I mean, we have equal rights laws all across the board. There will still be disparity because there's a disparity of development. Um, and that's going to manifest itself in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways, including in the performance of kids in these educational institutions. Maintaining the standard and uh, addressing the developmental deficit so as to raise kids to the standard is the way to respond to that situation. But the temptation is to avoid the hard work of actually addressing the residue of the historical oppression and to lower the standard in the interest of quote unquote equality. And the thing that I find most troubling about it, uh, not only the loss of human potential, but the loss of integrity and, and dignity in, in, in the society, because everybody actually knows uh, the difference between uh, fit, uh, healthy, uh, you know, uh, performance and, and uh, unfit and, and, and deficient performance. If you can't read, you can't read. There's no way to hide that. Um, so the... Um, Inequality of history, which led to the underdevelopment of the black population or some segments of it, when that development is underdevelopment is papered over and not addressed, continues in a in a uh, in a in a kind of unexpressed way. It continues uh, with people pretending that it doesn't exist, uh, and and I think that's uh, that's a, a a very bad place for us to be at. You know, this summer. All these schools, including yours, Glenn, Brown University, uh, rushed to send out self-flagellating letters about how racist they are, how racist America is, how sorry they are. And then it wasn't enough to say you're a racist. You had to say you're an anti-black racist, anti, you know, like it lists the things that you've done and said that are bad. Uh, 
we got our kids are in a we have a, a daughter she's at an all girl school and we have two boys in an all boys school so both the schools sent almost identical letters just we're terrible the u.s is terrible so sorry gonna do everything within our power to make it up to everybody and i think a lot of us were looking at this like what specifically did you do what did what did you do <laughs> there really wasn't anything specific it was just an attempt to appease uh, some of these student groups that were popping up, you know, black at this school, black at that school, recounting alleged incidents of racism that had happened 30 years ago, some deeply disturbing, some milk toast. you know, like I, I sat alone at the lunch table for a year. Meanwhile, I was like, well, that, that's called middle school, <laughs> white or black. <laughs> um, but I know that you spoke up at Brown, Glenn, because you were ticked off because it it had sort of the air of let me speak on behalf of the university to tell you how awful we are and what we're going to do about it. And you, people will not be surprised now that they've gotten to know you on, on this, um, spoke up. It's referred to as the Paxton letter, Paxton, because it was written by Christina Paxton, Brown's president. And it asserted that oppression, as well as prejudice, outright bigotry and hate directly and personally affect the lives of millions of people in this nation every minute and every hour committing the university to programming courses, research opportunities to promote equity and justice, and went on and on from there to do some of the self-flagellating that I just discussed. Why did you have such a problem with it? This was in the wake of the George Floyd killing. Uh, I had a problem with it because it was signed by every top administrator in the university. The person who runs the university's portfolio, the general counsel of the university, the provost of the university, dean of the faculty, dean of the School of Public Health, and so forth. Uh, it was a manifesto you read some of the language. I mean, think about that language. Uh, I can imagine the professor in African-American studies who uh, sent the memo that ended up getting adapted into the letter that had a sentence in it that every hour of every day and so forth and so on. It was preachy. Uh, it, it declared as if there were no argument that the killing of George Floyd was a manifestation of white supremacy run amok among us and that all decent people must stand on the right side. And I thought that um, Christina Paxson could have had that opinion as her personal opinion, but to have that sent to every student, every member of the faculty and staff and every alumnus, we're talking about many, many tens of thousands of people with the imprimatur of the entire university leadership, uh, that it was precluding the very intellectual deliberation about these sensitive and complex matters that the university exists to carry out in the first place. I thought it was a most horrific abuse of the responsibilities of management of this precious institution, which is a university, to put it on a bandwagon, to have it join a parade of people marching down the street with a banner. It's as if the university had taken a position in the presidential election, or if it had declared a position in the conflict in the Middle East or something like that. The cops, the riots, the civil disturbances, Black Lives Matter, these are not straightforward unambiguous, mono-dimensional uh, issues. These are very profound things. We're there to think it through. The university exists to think matters through. Um, this politicization is horrible. It is poisoning the well. We be careful that we don't be able to get it back, that we can't get it back, okay? This is not good. Uh, so... Uh, the, the idea that all right-thinking people in Brown's community agree that Derek Chauvin's killing of George Floyd, if indeed he did do so, was a reflection of a, 
every hour of every day, black people live under the whatever. That is clearly uh, uh, a uh, propagandistic ideological uh, uh, pose. Uh, it was horrible that the president of a university took that position. Horrible. So can I tell you, this resonated with me for personal reasons. Um, at our, I should say that we're, we've decided to move. New York City is, it's out of control on so many levels. And uh, after years of resisting it, we're, we're going to leave the city. Um, and we, we pulled our boys from their school and our daughter's going to leave hers soon too. Um, but the schools have already, uh, they've always been far left, which doesn't align with my own ideology, but I didn't really care. You know, it's just like I, most of my friends are liberals. It's fine. My, I come from Democrats as a family. I did. I don't, I'm not offended at all by the ideology and I, I, I lean center left on some things, but they've gone around the bend. I mean, they have gone off the deep end and I wanted to get your reaction to a letter that was circulated at the, the school we've now left, my, my, my son's school, former school. This summer, in the wake of George Floyd, they circulated amongst the diversity group, which includes white parents like us, you know, just people who are want to be allies and stay attuned to what we can do, um, uh, an article. And afterward, they, they recirculated it and wanted every member of the faculty to read it. It was written by a woman named Nalia Weber, who says she's the executive director of the Orleans Public Education Network. She works in education advocacy. And just give me one minute to tell you some highlights of what she writes that my school wanted circulated to all the faculty. She says, um, there is a killer cop sitting in every school where white children learn. They gleefully soak in their whitewashed history that downplays the Holocaust of indigenous native peoples and Africans in the Americas. They happily believe their all white spaces exist as a matter of personal effort and willingly use violence against black bodies to keep those spaces white. As black bodies drop like flies around us from violence at white hands, how can we in any of our minds conclude that whites are all right? White children are left unchecked and unbothered in their schools, homes, and communities to join, advance, and protect systems that take away black life. I am tired of white people reveling in their state-sanctioned depravity snuffing out black life with no consequences. Where is the urgency for school reform for white kids being indoctrinated in black death and protected from the consequences? Where are the government-sponsored reports looking into how white mothers are raising culturally deprived children who think black death is okay? Where are the national conferences, white papers, and policy positions on the pathology of whiteness in schools. And here's the last part. This time, if you really want to make a difference in black lives and not have to protest this shit again, go reform white kids, because that's where the problem is with white children being raised from infancy to violate black bodies with no remorse or accountability. Gosh. Gosh, that's (laughs) shocking. I mean, it's racist. That that's straightforwardly racist. Mm-hmm. I have you to tell can't you, be racist against white against against white people, Glenn. You know that. Oh, yeah. Come on, that, but that, we know that's false. I want to point out one thing. I think um, 
I hold out a little bit of hope because the problem right now is that woke is cool. Being a woke anti-racist, you know, if you're at the age where you very much care about being seen as cool by your friends, obviously not if you live in a red part of the country, but if you live in a city, if you live in a liberal suburb, it's cool to be woke. Um, it's It feels anti-establishment in some ways, even though I think I could make a case that it's not, given that, you know, Walmart and Target are saying Black Lives Matter at this point. Nevertheless, for many people, it feels like they didn't necessarily get woke from their kindergarten and sixth grade teachers. So they, they still feel they are, you can tap into that sense of edgy identity seeking adolescence by being woke. That can't go on forever and for much longer. As this stuff persuade, per, pervades the school systems and as, as people start hearing woke ideas from their kindergarten teachers, there's nothing that will make it less cool uh, more quickly. And I hold out hope <laughs> that that will happen as a result. Mm-hmm. Maybe well, that's Glenn optimistic. Said, you mentioned the term, they're poisoning the well. And that's that's how I felt when I read that letter. W- which which boy in my kid's school is the future killer cop? Is it my boy? Which boy is it? Because and it's based on I don't happen whiteness? to believe they're in there. <laughs> it's based on your whiteness? I mean, do you really, if you're a, a person interested in the well-being of Black people, want to invite a close scrutiny of the race of people who hurt other people in this country? Because if you do, you'll find that Blacks' attacks on whites are outnumbered, I'm, I'm sorry, whites' attacks on blacks are outnumbered probably by an order of magnitude uh, by blacks' attacks on whites. I don't have statistics in front of me, but I'm very, fairly confident that that's true. So, so why are we racializing this thing? Why is it the essentialization of, of race? A person in that situation should be asked, uh, the letter that you read, to defend uh, the position that uh, the race of the person is the thing that's relevant. Uh, I, I don't see that... Killer cops are white. White kids are at uh, risk of. Think of the flipping the script on that. Think, suppose you imputed anything of that sort to black people based upon our race. Uh, that would be horrific. It, it, it is indeed racist. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like pieces like that. And listen, she was sort of a floating academic before the, our school circulated it, you know, within the parent body and the faculty. That's that's a different level. Uh, but I feel like they are they're trying to create racism where none existed. You know, I mean, honestly, think of how the most of the white parents felt in response to that. You know, some imagine. because they're far left liberals here in New York are like, yes, yes, self-flagellation, more of it. Right. That's just what we need. But I will tell you, I was like, listen, lady, <laughs> my my sons are not future killer cops. Neither are his little classmates. And you're out of line. You're out of line. And it makes you upset. Right. It's like I think all of these messages from people like Robin D'Angelo that, you know, my main goal in life is to work on being less white is not doing much good for for our race relations. They're injecting so much tension where it didn't exist before. And I understand the, the, the argument from some of these sort of activists will be that's your white privilege talking. That's your white privilege. It's, it's been an active matter for every black person. You're just too privileged to understand. And now we're just bringing you into our world so you can understand how hard it's been. And I don't really give a damn if it's making you feel uncomfortable or pissed off. 
So what are, what do we do with that? It's not just Robin D'Angelo, it's Ibram Kendi. It's not just Ibram Kendi, it's ta Colts. It's not just ta Colts, it's Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's not just Nicole Hannah-Jones, it's Ava DuVernay. Uh, the, the drift of this uh, white supremacist domination, black bodies uh, rhetoric is what, uh, is what accounts for this. I cannot tell you, Megan, you're going to have to tell me why it is that white people are so susceptible to allowing themselves to be uh, uh, flagellated. Uh, with this stuff because it's, uh, you know, it, it's not exactly compelling. Because we're scared. We're scared. We don't want to be called racist. You know, I mean, the, the only reason I, I feel capable of discussing these issues as openly as I do is because I've been called that word so many times it's lost all its meaning. And I figured out at this point in my career, it's it's a tactic. They, they don't actually think I'm a racist or maybe they do. But the reason they're calling me that is to shut me up. You know, that that's why they're saying it. And, but I think for most people to be called a racist is probably the worst thing they could be called. And they just rather not say a damn word. They'd rather not touch it. Yeah. I mean, think of Kamala and Joe Biden. You know, I'm not the first person to point this out, but, you know, the whole subtext of her attack on him uh, over busing and, um, yeah. uh, you know, making deals with segregationist senators back in the day was you're a racist. And then all of a sudden, when it's in her self-interest, that's forgotten. And frankly, most people seem not to care. Most people who liked the Biden Kamala ticket didn't, you know, they, they, many liked the attack of the activists, at least they liked the attack on Joe Biden for racism. But suddenly when she paired up with him, it's totally fine to be in bed with a racist. Not to to mention uh, Anita Hill, not to mention uh, Tara Reid. Yeah, I think part of the, I, I think Shelby Steele has a very good line about this. Uh, in his recent documentary and in his writing, which is that white guilt is misnamed. It's not really guilt. It is a terror at the thought of uh, being accused of racism or the terror at the thought that one might actually be a racist. Um, And I think there are many white people that haven't felt that and so can't understand why white people who have felt that terror act so insane and self-flagellating and masochistic. But for those that do feel that guilt or that terror, um, it's incredibly attractive to have this ideology that, you know, Robin D'Angelo, for example, what she says is, yes, white people, you're all racist, but it's not your fault. Society created you racist. So in in the same way that one, one can walk into a church and feel forgiven by Jesus, Jesus sees all my sins. He sees my, my ugliness and still forgives me nonetheless. That feeling of release is what white people are looking for and what attracts them to this absolutely otherwise unintelligible ideology. Well, you know what I've realized in my, in my travails is most of the people who are loudest in their insults, uh, toward me at least, when it comes to that charge, are white liberals. I, I honestly, and if somebody, if, if I ever meet a black person who has an issue like that, they tend to be very progressive. I have yet to meet a conservative black person who has any problem with me whatsoever. And so over time, you realize this isn't a skin color issue. This is a politics issue. And once you realize that, it helps you reframe the whole thing. It helps you regain your willingness to talk openly and honestly. But it's hard, man. It's hard. And I don't know a lot of white people who have even if they understand that, who would talk about it publicly, we'll, you know, I'll have a dinner with somebody will say, 
you know, tell me what you've learned. What do you think about this? What but they would never have that conversation in the public square or at their office place, especially now. Uh, well, of all that's happened over the summer has only shamed people more into the closet from discussing racial issues. What do you guys I think? I think that must be true. It must be true. And it's so interesting, the, the disparity between what it is you can say publicly and what it is that you might think and how people negotiate with each other. I wonder what these dinner parties are like where, quote unquote, white people are sitting around, all of whom are getting the same stimulus of uh, the same uh, uh, news feed, the same public conversation about what's going on, and they know their correct positions. How do they reveal to each other the fact that they might have doubts, the fact that they might not really, really buy in to the narrative that they're all racist? How do they you know, uh, work around that. I mean, that, that's that got to be some very interesting, uh, very interesting material for a novelist to, you know, if we had a Tom Wolf, a kind of, you know, satirist who could uh, take us behind the scenes of, you know, white people letting their hair down. I mean, that that could be a comic, a comic routine or something like that. Well, I've, I've, I've been open about this stuff for years, right? And it's like, I've been trying to discuss race issues. I think you need more white people who are willing to take risks. Otherwise, even I said this to Coleman when I went in his podcast, even if you falter, even if you don't do it perfectly, I can speak to that. So what? You got to try. How are we going to get past this if, if it's like white liberals in a silo self-flagellating and then guys like you who are willing to have really open, honest discussions about it? But ne- ne'er the twain shall meet. You know, there's not going to be any debate. Uh, even Coleman's been trying to get Ibram X. Kendi to debate him forever. And Ibram's like, who? Huh? What? No, he won't do it. He won't defend the premise of his book to someone like Coleman Hughes, I think, because he knows he's going to be outmatched. Anyway, so I, I, I'll i be at a party where I'll say, hey, did you see this? You see this Coleman Hughes, Hughes please, piece or whatever? I'll try to raise something. And I'm telling you, it's like, and these are with people from all all parts of the ideological spectrum. Because as I say, I'm I was at Fox News for 13 years, but I live in the Upper West Side. So it's all it's all liberals. All my friends are liberals. And it's like crickets. No one will say anything in response. They just don't want to touch race because it's become now a third rail. And if you're white, the only proper response is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's annoying, too. I find I would much prefer personally, I would prefer to be friends with a white person that is unfiltered and sometimes goes too far and says something that even rubs me the wrong way than someone who is just made themselves more boring by giving in to white guilt. What do you guys think people should do? You know, I've been thinking about this. We've been talking about it openly. Now we're in an age where your company says you got to go to anti-racist training and it really is. You, you have to, this is being done at our schools not our new school, <laughs> but it's, you have to sit there and for like three days at some of these seminars that you have to, you wind up having to put a placard around your neck with your degree of racism, one through 10. <laughs> so you get to wear your, your, your scarlet letter <laughs> and then the black participants get to tell you about their experiences and you know racism and so on, how it's affected their lives. The white people are not supposed to speak at all. And then on the last day of the seminar, they're allowed to say like a couple of things, but they need to be supportive. And, and most of the time you are told to, quote, sit in the quiet of your own white racism. I, So many people want to know, how do I not do that? I, I have no wish to do it. I have no wish to put my kid through it. At, again, at one of the schools we're leaving, it's now there's a push to make it mandatory for, for, for students to have to sit through that. 
again, dividing boys who were loving and friends, you know, a couple months ago, now being told one of you is the oppressor and one of you is the oppressed. So what do you guys think? What What is the answer to that? Hey, Megan, have you heard about Jody Shaw, the case of Jody Shaw? She's, she I love her. Like, Smith. Oh, you know her? Okay, yes, indeed. She's putting I out don't know videos. her, but I love her and I watched her video. Yeah, I've watched her videos as well. She, she's a, a, a member of the staff of Smith College and uh, she's complaining in this series of videos about how she's been treated inside of these diversity training sessions. I won't try to recapitulate what she says, but it seems to me she's got to be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. What I love about Jody Shaw is she's kind of, you know, meek i would say she doesn't she doesn't project very strong and yet she's she's doing it man i mean she's brave she's like this is baloney i don't want to be shamed for the color of my skin and we should be able to have discussions without getting shamed by the university oh and by the way everything i'm saying is protected by the law so don't fire me <laughs> but i do think unless people unless we get more jodies um or people just willing to say i'm just as Douglas Murray keeps saying, you have to say, I refuse to let you re-racialize my company, my country, and myself. But man, easier said than done. And it, it occurs to me, I, I would like someone who defends this kind of diversity workshop where white people are told to remain silent, to come up with a single example from human history where you have improved the relationship between two groups of people that see themselves to some extent as groups, having some kind of group consciousness by, by ritual dominance, right? Like what is more, what is a more direct signal of social dominance than you cannot speak, you must listen and not reply. That's, that's what a parent does to punish their child. How, how, again, come up with one example in which that improved rather than created resentment in the population that has to submit to the ritual dominance. I would never, as a Black person, submit to such humiliation. And, and I would never ironic. ask anyone else to. It's, a, it's so ironic because it's really based upon white power. I mean, the reason that they get away with saying you can't speak is the presumption that in your whiteness, you are, you're this dominant force that has oppressed. And so uh, you have now to cede the ground to the, to the weak and whatnot. Uh, and that's their power. Their, their power is pointing to white power uh, in a way. I mean, it, 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 it proceeds at the sufferance of the oppressor. You declare the white to be the oppressor and you, in, you impose upon him or her in this way uh, and you expect them to forbear and to allow you to impose because they accept the fact that they are the oppressor. Uh, you give them all the power. Right. I mean, I was saying after Robin D'Angelo's book, if I behaved the way this woman wants me to behave, my black friends would laugh in my face. <laughs> if I walked, can you imagine? Let's see. I, I see you next time at the Comedy Cellar Coleman and I walk in and I say, I just want to begin with, I apologize on behalf of myself, on behalf of my race, and I promise to spend the rest of my life trying to make amends. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's you, You'd be insufferable. You can't actually develop intimacy, whether as a friend or more with somebody, if, if, if you presuppose that they trump you on on whole domains of of reality like race relations right like your thoughts don't matter 
Um, you have to remain silent. You have to submit to them. It, it's just, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not a relationship that I would want with any of my white friends. Like I said, I would rather have someone who's unfiltered and, and wrong sometimes than someone who is so filtered that I have no idea who they actually are, what they actually think, or if they even know what they actually think, you know, cause you can get to a point where you don't allow yourself to think because you're so afraid of what you might actually think if you, if indeed you really thought. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's so, that is perfect. I, yeah, you know, it's, I have to say as growing up as a Democrat, you know, a Democrat house and going through academia, which tends to make you lean left anyway, I never really spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of these issues. And one of them was affirmative action. But I was like, I'm, I guess I'm pro affirmative action because I'm, I'm pro equality. And that seems to be something that my side when I was growing up was for. So that sounds good. And then, and the more I've read about that, the more I've really had reason to second guess myself. And, you know, I, I read Heather McDonald's book and I, and I've been reading a lot of, of Shelby, Thomas Sowell, you guys. And I know there really are questions about how well that works out, right? Like when it comes to student education, that's what I'm talking about in particular, like racial preferences in university admissions, um, which, you know, they just tried to re-legalize in California. They had, they had outlawed them and, th- and they tried to re-legalize them and the, the voters rejected that. But it does seem like th- that may be part of the Jason Riley please stop helping us, right? Because it, it doesn't help at all in the long run because what, what the studies seem to show is that it creates a division for the black student who gets into a university that he might not have otherwise have been admitted to because, you know, it, people uh, may hold it against him. They may assume he's there for reasons other than he deserves to be. And that he may, in fact, not be able to handle the work or she may, you know, if I, if I were admitted to Harvard because somebody wanted to do affirmative action or, or you know, preferences for people who are Irish, it would have been a miserable experience for me. I can tell you right now, I could not have handled that course load. And Glenn, you used to work there, so you know this. Um, But I went to Syracuse and you know what? I was a star. (laughs) It was great. Worked out great for me. So it doesn't always work out to to lift somebody up to a place that their their raw academic merits couldn't have justified. What do you think, Glenn? Yeah, well, I think it's a, we've been at this forever. Uh, affirmative action is going all the way back to the 1970s. This is a half century. Um, it should have been uh, and should be conceived of as uh, a transitional response to the underrepresentation of African-Americans that is a part of a dynamic, developmentally focused program that has as its end state a institution of equal standards of performance. Instead, it's become a crutch. Uh, it's it's not a hand up, it's a hand out. Uh, it, it's not dealing with the fact that there were no blacks at places like Harvard or Princeton or Yale in 1950, uh, and that's not acceptable for our democracy, to dealing with the fact that uh, what you said is true about uh, primary and secondary education in so many communities in this country that are uh, not serving well these African-American students. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's huge controversy about the empirical effects of affirmative action. I I think you can probably justify as Bowen and Bach, presidents of uh, uh, Princeton and Harvard in the 1990s, William Bowen and Derek Bach in their book, uh, The Shape of the River, they try to justify what they're doing. They said, no, we're not using the same standards, but by and large, our kids do okay. 
they get through, they get their degrees, they become important people in their communities and their professions, and they contribute to American society. And we need to integrate the elites of American society. You can't have lily white elites, they're saying that. But that's a that should be a transitional thing. The institutionalization of it is horrible. It's it's so corrupt. It uh, tarnishes the uh, achievements. Uh, it uh, 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 creates doubt. It, it creates mediocrity. Uh, people are in over their heads in so many venues and so many situations. And the response, rather than recognizing that, and by the way, it's a statistical necessity. If you're an elite institution and you're selecting from the very right tail of the performance of the kids and you have different standards by race, you're going to get different performance by race after the fact. The standards are correlated with how kids do after they get in. If you're using different standards, you're going to get on average different performance. And that creates a situation where uh, in order to avoid acknowledging the different performance, you end up watering down. You end up with great inflation. Uh, You end up with African-American studies. I'm sorry, people get very angry with me for saying this, but you end up with mediocrity. No, all African-American studies is not mediocre. But people switch out of the STEM disciplines and they go into the soft disciplines in order to avoid the rigorous quantitative work. Things get watered down. Um, And and this is not equality. So in other words, if you're at Harvard and you wouldn't have otherwise gotten in, you you maybe if you had gone, you know, to Syracuse, you you could have been an engineer. You, you could have handled this is the workload there to become an hypothesis. This is the idea that the kids get matched with the wrong schools, and that it's, there's a fair amount of evidence uh, to support that uh, as well. I knew I was right not to even try to go to Harvard. I knew it. <laughs> I feel totally validated. I'm sure I, you know, probably could have gotten in. You, know. <laughs> you would have gotten by at Harvard. <laughs> Oh, contraire, sir. But it was fine. It worked out fine in the end. I always tell people who are so obsessed about colleges, and I know you guys have these esteemed, beautiful academic pedigrees, but it can be fine if you don't go to Harvard. You know, Syracuse is def- it was the, it's the Harvard of Syracuse. Um, and then I went to Albany Law School, which is at best, you know, uh, I'll be charitable and say second tier. Uh, but if, it's fine. If you do well, you work hard, you're a gunner, you figure out what you're good at, you can achieve great success in your life, no matter the academic pedigree. I would say that the number one thing, in, in my view, you get it, these good schools. And my husband went to Duke and then Georgetown is connections. You don't necessarily get connections to future powerful people at these other schools. Well, I'm sticking with Brown. So there. Good man. And and I don't know, Coleman, do you think you'll go back into academia at all? I don't plan to at this moment. Good. Um, I mean, we need you, but. But good, because we also need you. It's a hard environment. I mean, I I admire you, Glenn. But, you know, even as an undergrad, it it, uh, takes a toll to be the only person in the class, you know, kind of coming into every class with a chip on my shoulder. If if at all these issues are going to be discussed, feeling that I can't lie, but perhaps being the only one willing to speak up and developing a reputation where, you know, people, your reputation precedes you. And, and it, in many ways, it's, it's negative. It's, it's not like, get, given the choice, I'm not sure it makes sense for me, you know, psychologically to go back, unless there was some something that was, you know, was such a benefit that I felt I, I needed to. What do you make of that, Glenn? I say that we uh, institutions of higher education will have failed in our mission if uh, 
qualities of mind such as Coleman Hughes manifest feel they have no place in our ranks. I say I'm almost motivated to start a program at Brown University uh, with the uh, intention of having a dozen Coleman Hughes types decide that they're going to write a dissertation in something really important. It's been two or three years. Just think of it as investing in this book that's going to make you a gazillion dollars when it finally comes out and you're going to have a PhD after your name afterwards. Exploring in depth some of the most important questions of our time. I think the academy is the place to go to reflect. It's to go to be challenged by the very best that's been thought and written uh, about the most difficult matters of human existence uh, and to be uh, challenged and to be questioned and to uh, learn from and, and to stimulate and be stimulated by. Uh, I would say it doesn't have to be your whole life, uh, but I think there's still something that we have to offer uh, to a Coleman Hughes, and it's shame on us uh, if we are so configured that he doesn't that he doesn't feel comfortable in our midst. That's never a never-ending cycle. People like Coleman don't want to go there and teach because he feels unwelcome, and then more conservative students either hide the fact that they're conservative or don't want to go there because they don't feel represented at all in the faculty body or or student body, and. They go underground, they say nothing. And so they arrive at school and they get the tour from, you know, a person who aligns with some gender defined by the astrological spectrum and who's, you know, <laughs> going to walk them through all of the, the prerequisites to being accepted on campus, i.e. your progressive bona fides. Then they're thinking, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for four years until I get out of here. Or, or they genuinely get turned and they emerge ready to push the progressive agenda to call out their parents as racist and transphobes. And that's, I think, how we wind up with, an, with a media, a media that's, I think 71 million people are racist and sexist and transphobic and xenophobic and awful and, you know, need to be condemned at, any, at every turn. Um, I want to mention Carol Swain because she's somebody who I think has gone through it, right? She's like, she's somebody who was in the academic system and a professor who got more conservative in her viewpoint and started writing books that were more conservative and she got more faithful and yeah. she was basically pushed out. It, it's, it's, and she's, she's a woman of color. She's a black woman. So you'd think if, if, if you can't keep Carol, <laughs> like you think yeah, you'd be Carol. dying to have somebody like Carol stay, but nope. Yeah, Carol's an old friend and she's a brilliant woman and uh, she is a woman of faith and uh, yeah, she's a contrarian and uh she was at what Vanderbilt and there was a lot of brouhaha down there about some comments that she made and so forth. People called her names and, and she was blackballed. Um, but she, she certainly didn't deserve it. Do you get called names? Do you get called like the uncle Tom kind of thing, Glenn? I mean, you're more conservative. I, I would hope, I hope not, but I, do you? I probably, maybe I'm just unaware. Maybe I'm oblivious to the corner of Twitter where they're calling me all sorts of names. Uh you know, I'm, I'm past that. Uh, I used to get called names when I was a Reagan Republican back in the 80s. Pathetic black mascot of the right is what one of my colleagues at Harvard uh, dubbed me. But, um, you know, I'm past that by now. You don't care. Can no. we just talk about the 1619 Project before I let you guys go? The 1619 Project has been debated a lot over the past couple of years, and I'm stunned by what this whole thing has said about where we are as a country and where the media is. The New York Times love them or hate them, and their subscribers are, I think the latest stats were something like almost 90% liberal. Um, it used to at least be someplace that, while biased, did care about facts and fact-checking. 
So there'd be a slant, but there wouldn't necessarily be egregious errors that went uncorrected all the time. Wow, not so with respect to this piece. So Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote originally that, you know, the, the country was founded in order to preserve slavery. There were all sorts of challenges to that. Now we know before it was published, the New York Times rejected them, ignored them. It comes out, she gets the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> all these historians come out and say, this is totally factually wrong. Black scholars too. It's not just a bunch of white scholars saying this is just completely erroneous. It's just not true. The country was not founded to preserve slavery. And the Times was pretty silent about it. And then what happened recently was they quietly and without calling any attention to it, started erasing those passages from the sort of preamble, the introduction to her piece and not not being open about it. And now you, Glenn, and some other very esteemed professors have issued a call to have that Pulitzer Prize revoked. First of all, has have has anyone responded to that? And second of all, why do you think that's important? Uh, no one has responded so far as I know. Uh, I did sign on to this letter that uh, Peter Wood, the National Association of Scholars, circulated, um, and a number of other people uh, did as well, uh, in virtue of the egregious behavior uh, that you just described uh, in terms of uh, running with uh, and, and, and putting so much of institutional support behind uh, a narrative that had problems. I mean, yes, she did assert that um, because a few uh, of the uh, of the uh, founding uh, generation of uh, Americans feared uh, the uh, British potentiality of interfering with the slave traffic, and for that reason, were motivated to fight in the revolution. That therefore, uh, that was the basic uh, driving force behind the entire. Uh, movement, uh, which was false. Uh, she'd also claimed that uh, 1619 and not 1776 well, was a better metaphor for understanding uh, the large scale narrative of the country and then backed away from that, saying, no, she didn't mean to replace 1776 with 1669. She just meant to somehow recenter the narrative and elevate the role that African American uh, uh, exclusion and then aspiration for inclusion should play in the American narrative. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize, I think they made a mistake, but they're not going to uh, they're not going to take it back. I think that's pretty clear. Hmm. And so what does that say to you about where we are as a country? Um, I'm into talking about narratives these days. Uh, I talk about the development narrative and the bias narrative when we're talking about race and the narrative about the American story, the the American project is fundamentally important. Is this a good country? Or is this a country that's founded on genocide and, and slavery? The uh, impact of Western settlement in the Western hemisphere, the European settlement in the Western hemisphere on the native population was de devastating. There's not any doubt about that. And the commerce and chattel, which was uh, transatlantic slavery, was of a huge scale, mostly going to uh, uh, Caribbean and uh, South America, but of a huge scale. It was monumental in, in world history. It was monumental in the foundation of the uh, uh, events that led to the American nation state. There's not any doubt about that. But the uh, founding of the country, uh, 1776, 1787, the, the creation of the United States of America was a world historic event in which the enlightenment ideals got instantiated in government institutions. 
And as a matter of fact, within a century, slavery was gone. And you know what? The people who had been African chattel became citizens of the United States of America, not equal citizens, not at first. It took another century. But they became, in the fullness of time, equal citizens of the United States of America. The United States of America fought fascism in the Pacific and fought fascism in Europe and saved the world. American democracy became a beacon to, quote unquote, the free world. We stood down under threat of nuclear annihilation. The horror, which was the union of Soviet socialist republics. We have had the greatest transformation in the social status of a serfdom people, which was the uh, what, if, what the emancipation affected in the creation of the Negro of the African-American, probably that you could find anywhere in world history. 40 million strong, the richest people of African descent on the planet by far. This is a question of narrative. Are you going to look through the uh, lens of the United States as a racist, uh, genocidal, white supremacist, illegitimate force? Are you going to see it for what it is? Uh, which in the last 300 years is the greatest force for human liberty on the planet. That's worth fighting about. That these people at the New York Times lay down to a latter-day woke ideology and debase their country is despicable. I am going to write that down and post it on my Instagram, on my Twitter, on my Facebook, and send it in to every school that tells me and my children, America is systemically racist. It's always been racist. We need to apologize for our racism at every turn and is fundamentally an awful place. I, I love everything you just said. Coleman, why aren't the kids talking like that? Why isn't patriotism taught anymore? Why... By the way, our new school makes the boys say the pledge, which I like. You know, like when I was a kid, it was okay to celebrate Columbus Day. It was okay to celebrate the 4th of July. It was okay to say you loved America and its military and its foundational ideals. And now, I think thanks to guys like Colin Kaepernick, just saluting the flag or standing for the anthem, now you got people explaining why they're standing. What not not people explaining why they knelt, but explaining why they're standing to respect our flag and everything that's been sacrificed for it. Well, I don't think you have to teach patriotism. I think all you have to teach is balanced world history. And a, a rational person will come to the conclusion that there is something special about America. America is not your average country. Um, there is a reason why it's the number one destination for black and brown migrants, migrants in general, black and brown migrants in particular, across the world. There's a reason why I could win money betting all day that the average migrant from West Africa or East Africa or India, if they have one destination in mind, it's here. That is not a coincidence. It's because there is something about America that is especially open um, liberal in the classical sense, and that those values have had good consequences for the ability of diverse peoples from all across the world to ascend from uh, third world poverty to first world poverty to president of the United States. It's why there, why there is nothing. Why, why, when you hear rags to riches stories in America, you don't even bat an eye. You take it for granted because it happens so often. Um, when we talk about history, you, you, you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to teach 
patriotic history per se. What you have to teach is global history, balanced history. Uh, a lot of people have no idea about the, the worldwide institution of slavery, slavery in the Middle East, in China, going back thousands of years, uh, the Aztecs, you know, so people conceive of it as somehow a uniquely American sin. And they have no concept of how, how commonplace cruelty and human bondage has been on across every corner of the earth since antiquity. Um, and so the fundamental question is whether you compare America to the ideal nation you can have in your mind based on your 2020 morality, or whether you compare it to other nations at this moment. I mean, right now, China is lecturing us about systemic racism while committing something bordering on ethnic cleansing with, with the Uyghur Muslims. It's, it's absolutely laughable. Um, and, it, you know, j just there, there's a contradiction at the center of it, too. It's like, what other country can you can you picture China or India or Turkey or Russia having a 1619 project? even reflecting on their own history in any negative way whatsoever? Can you picture them having a, a, a book like um, the, the, the Howard Zinn book, People's History mm -hmm. of, of the United States, which was a bestseller in like the 80s or something? Can you, can you picture a Chinese version of that, a Turkish version of that? No. It's because, and that in a sense speaks to our commitment to self-criticism, to freedom of speech, which is a novel idea uh, in the in the in the long view of history, um, and so and so, I think ultimately it's, it is an ignorance of the uh, the rest of the world that leads people to be unreflectively anti-America. And I think I have a much easier time talking to immigrants about this kind of thing. Uh, than I do people who, who've been raised here for so long that they don't know that other places exist. Mm -hmm. I love that. You don't have to teach patriotism. You just have to teach history, world history, and people will get it. I've got to ask you one last thing that I've, I've, I've been struggling to answer myself. And I don't, I'm really curious to hear what your answers are going to be on this. This is like one of the main things I wanted to ask you. So I think it's pretty clear that I'm not a wokester. And that I, I don't buy into all this, you know, racial division BS. Um, but I, like most Americans, also see that there is still racism in the United States and take it on a case by case basis to make up my own mind. Overall, in general, as a human in this country and certainly as a white human here, what can I do and what can the listeners do if, if they want to, without buying into all that other stuff? Be an ally. How how can we be good brothers and sisters to people of color and be helpful and be open minded and and take into consideration that there is a history that we all are dealing with in a way that's helpful and helps bring us together and forward. Oh gosh, I don't know what to say, Megan. I I would I the first thought in my mind was be honest. Please don't don't uh, hold back tell people what you really think uh, you want to be an ally um and uh that means be be have the courage to criticize have the courage of your convictions and such like that but uh 
And I also want to say, let's make it a decent society for everybody. And then a lot of these racial disparity questions would take care of themselves. And we don't have to get disparities down to zero in order to avoid the, you know, food insecurity, uh, people who don't have a decent place to live, schools that don't work, unsafe neighborhoods and things like that. Let's make it a better society for everybody. But that's not really what you ask. You want, you want, you want advice about how to have your integrity intact and not succumb to this nonsense. And yet at the same time, feel that you're on the right side of history with respect to the racial questions. And I'm very interested to know what Coleman is going to have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Well, thank you, Glenn. <laughs> Commit yourself to reason. Always be skeptical of yourself and your own tendency to confirm pre-existing beliefs. That's always good advice for everybody. Um, try to remain open-minded. And that doesn't just... Some people, people interpret that as be open-minded to liberal activist ideas sometimes. But seriously, be open-minded to everything um but don't but but have standards for what you believe um listen it's a, it's a very tough thing to negotiate and you know everyone has to negotiate it in in a different way depending on their individual circumstances so i don't have i don't really have the one size fits all platitude that is going to you know superficially help people uh with this issue but ultimately you know everything that is good advice for a human being pursuing a happy life and a pro-social existence on this planet is also good advice with respect to the issue of race and race relations this is not personal advice but this may be advice for the society perhaps we should be working toward unlearning race and by that i do mean uh, you know, intermarriage. Uh, by that, I mean uh, the adoption. Uh, by, th by that, I mean mixing and getting out of this uh, constructed, uh, uh, socially reproduced fiction that we're really different. We're not. Um, so I think that's really the only answer in the long run, that we have to lower the amount of importance that we give to the superficial features of our physical presentation. Um, we should have friends, we should have neighborhoods, we should have schools, we should have families that are integrated across racial lines to the point that in the fullness of time, we would give no significance whatsoever. Now, people will go ballistic in me talking, they'll call me an assimilationist, they will, you know, but I think. I'm not saying this from the point of view of being a black person. I'm saying this from the point of view of being a human being. You two are a national treasure. Oh. I'm so, so glad we had this conversation and I really hope we can continue it. And I just, I do want to say everyone should really check out conversations with Coleman. Coleman, I subscribed and I paid more than was necessary because I support <laughs> and love you. <laughs> and you, it's man. an option on there. And <laughs> and Glenn's show, the Glenn show, you can get I you, you can get it on podcast or YouTube, but I usually watch them on YouTube. Well, we got patreon.com forward slash Glenn show. We we now have a, a crowdsourcing site if people want to go oh, and give me some. I will give you more than you want to. <laughs> well, sign yeah, up because there's gonna be extra I'm following in Coleman's footsteps. It's about time. <laughs> well, <laughs>
<laughs> that is a nice way of just telling someone you love them, you love what they're doing, and you're behind them. You can't, you know, too often we hear what Twitter has to say about us, and maybe looking at the Patreon revenues is a better way of gauging it. You guys, thank you again. So much love to you both. Thank you, Megan. Likewise, Megan. That was amazing. Wasn't that amazing? Aren't you going to run write down that Glenn Lowry answer and just think about it? That's how I felt when Dennis Prager said the other day, and I said, you know, the left has got the media, and they control uh, the big tech, and they control Hollywood, and they control sports. What do conservatives control? And he said, ourselves. So good. That's how I felt when Glenn spoke. And Coleman, with the patriotism, right? You don't teach it. You just teach history. Yes. Hello. Love that I'm learning and being inspired. And I hope you feel the same. Um, before we go, I want to tell you that today's episode was brought to you in part by Pure Talk USA. Get unlimited talk, text, plus two gigs of data for just 20 bucks a month. Dial pound 250 and say Megan Kelly for an additional 50% off your first month. That is good. Thank you for listening to the program. Please go and subscribe if you haven't already. We'd love to have the direct relationship with you. Subscribe, download, five-star rating if you're feeling really kind and generous. And uh, a review, too, with possibly guest ideas, thoughts on Coleman and Glenn, and uh, anything else you want to share. Loving the experience, you guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.